Well, hello and welcome to the Auto Buyer's Guide podcast, powered by Alex on Autos. I'm Tim Masso with the No Drama Cars are Alex Dykes. Alex, you just drove the new Integra. What were your impressions? I did. Uh, you know, my honest, honest first take impression, and we can noodle this around a bit more, is if you're looking for a luxury Honda Civic Si, then the Integra is a solid option. And to be perfectly honest, for people that are offended by that, the Integra has always been a luxury Civic, um, but it has not always been a luxury Civic Si. So we get 200 horsepower from the standard turbo. We get the same CVT that will offend some shoppers out there, but you can get a six-speed manual, the same manual that we find in the Civic Si. Um, and honestly, I think the sexier styling that we find in the Acura lineup, a bit more feature content, a longer standard warranty, better dealer experience. And if you are willing to consider it a cross shop to the BMW 2 Series, uh, the Audi A3 or the Lexus UX, it's definitely a really good value. fascinating is you more or less have to max out the car to almost $37,000, um, get it with the A-Spec performance mm -hmm. package if you want the manual transmission, but apparently 65% of the pre-orders are exactly that. Do they know yes. their market here? I think that Acura's done a really good job with the pricing and the, the configurations there. They knew that it would be a very specific customer that wanted the manual. They said they did a lot of customer research with existing Integra shoppers, and they asked a decent number of them, you know, where would you want to see the manual in the lineup? And they really told them they wanted to see it across the line, and that wasn't ever going to happen. And so what they decided to do was favor the shoppers that wanted the everything mobile. Um, and they said based on their research back when TLX uh, – offered a manual transmission, if you remember those days back then, or TSX, I'm sorry, TSX offered a manual transmission. Um, apparently the manual transmissions take rate was highest in the, the higher end trims. And that's something that we've seen in other manufacturers for a while. Mazda does that, for instance, in the Mazda 3. It makes sense. Uh, if you want the manual transmission, you're going to be an enthusiast. So you're probably going to want uh, the extra features that enthusiasts are interested in. There once was a time where manual transmissions were the loss leader and, uh, you know, the entry-level vehicle was the less expensive transmission. That's actually not the case. Manual transmission in the uh, Integra is actually probably the most expensive one for them to build. Now, what's fascinating to me isn't so much that the manual transmission is there or that it's the premium option. It's that the, the outgoing ILX had mm -hmm. a dual-clutch option. And yes. here we get a true CVT. Why not offer the performance-oriented automatic transmission that they already have in-house? Yeah, to be honest, I never could get a clear answer from Acura on this because honestly, their 8-speed DCT was fabulous. It's a great transmission. Um, it, it manages to combine the quick shifts of a DCT with the smooth start of an automatic transmission because it's the only production DCT with a torque converter. Um, and then once first gear is used, the torque converter gets deleted from the equation and then it has the quick shifts that you'd expect from a DCT. But it allows you to do stop and go traffic, slow and go traffic, um, climb hills, etc and feel like a traditional automatic transmission. The problem was they said it was never made to be mated to the 1.5 liter turbo. It was designed to be mated to the old naturally aspirated engine. Um, they would have had to have redesigned the bell housing and some other components in the transmission. And I think they just figured it wasn't gonna sell in high enough volume. 
Um, Acura's mission with the Integra is to be the value option in the segment. And if they had done the eight-speed DCT, of course, again, this is me guessing here because Acura won't comment on it directly. My guess is the price tag would have been more similar to the German options. And at that point, it's much more of a which is better conversation. And Acura always has the it's a better value portion answered. So comparably equipped, the Integra is going to be six to $10,000 less than the German options or the Lexus UX. And once you get it up to parity, you start having more real world, you know, which one is better for this, better for that discussions. And simply saying we're the least expensive solves a lot of that, I think. Now, in terms of those German options, we're talking about Mercedes A-Class, uh, Audi A3, BMW mm -hmm. 2 Series, Grand Coupe. Uh, what kind of price gap are we talking? If we're talking a loaded Integra for 36 and change, how right. much of an advantage does that offer over the German options? A pretty significant one, to be perfectly honest. It means that you could get a mid-level trim ILX. There are really only three trim levels, by the way, for everybody out there. There's the base version, there's the A-Spec, and A-Spec with technology. Um, but you could get the mid-level trim or the upper-end trim for about the price of a very lightly equipped A3 or 228i or CLA250 or the Lexus UX. And by the time you're talking about comparably equipped, because especially a lot of the driver assistance tech is going to be optional on the German options, generally speaking. So the adaptive cruise control, lane centering, blind spot monitoring, all that sort of stuff is standard on Integra. Uh, you're going to pay thousands of dollars extra for that on the German options. But if we're talking about the better vehicle, that's a tricky construct because I would say that there are certainly versions of the A3 and 228i and CLA250 that are objectively better cars. They're going to be faster. They're going to handle better. They're going to have nicer features, et cetera, but they're going to cost you a lot more. And the cost of operation is not just uh, that initial purchase price, which is, of course, going to be higher in the Germans. It's going to be the repair and maintenance costs, the fuel economy, uh, reliability, insurance, et cetera. All of that is going to be more expensive. So Acura's really solidly carved themselves into this value niche. The sad part for a lot of, I think, Acura enthusiasts is going to be that a lot of folks really wanted Acura to take the game to the Germans, and they absolutely have not. Um, there are still solid reasons to buy the other alternatives. All-wheel drive, more power, uh, better handling, summer tires, et cetera, rear seat air vents, um, solid reasons to buy the others. But if you're really looking simply for a luxury car logo, that dealer experience, and the reliability, then it's going to be a really great option. And I, I think based on sales of the outgoing ILX, there's definitely a large market for that. Now, I would say realistically, they're always going to leave the door open to the possibility of a Type R down the mm -hmm. line. Um, uh, they're going to exhaust the initial demand because this is a niche product. This this is yes. fan service at this point. Uh, but let's talk about what makes this more than an SI because I think we can talk mm -hmm. about how it's less than some of these German options, especially when you start talking about S3s and AMGs and RS3s. Interior, body style, lift back, and Magna Ride. In my mind, these are the four big differentiators. Did you find anything beyond that? And, and how much of a difference is there from, from a Civic? Yeah, I mean, that's pretty much it. So, you know, we have all, all the styling components. There are a few different options here and there, and they vary around a bit. Um, so, you know, we have power seats with power lumbar, etc. We have the adaptive dampers. We have the heads-up display, uh, which we don't find in the Civic Si. The interesting twist, of course, is that adaptive dampers used to be available in the SI, and they're no longer available in this generation. Uh, but you do give up things like the summer tires that you do get in an SI. You don't get in the Integra at the moment. 
Of course, you could swap those out yourself. Um, we also get the sport back part of this, and it's not quite the same sport back structure that we find in the Civic. They didn't just transplant it off of the Civic, etc. Uh, they claim that this particular design is is more rigid, um, has better body integrity, etc., than the Civic's design. Um, they honestly drive very much alike, which for the Integra is actually a good thing because driving dynamics wise. You know, a front-wheel drive A3, a front-wheel drive BMW 2 Series, and a front-wheel drive Mercedes. Honestly, they drive quite like the Civic as well. The Civic has a really good feel to it out on the road, nice turn-in, etc. Um, reasonable power from the 1.5-liter turbo. And if you're interested in driving enjoyment for a low price tag, I would argue that the manual transmission version of the Integra is probably the best deal in the segment. Nobody else offers a manual. Uh, the DCT in the Mercedes is honestly not my favorite. It's, it's kind of herky-jerky. Um, and the other transmissions are just not as engaging as a manual. We, of course, get a traditional auto in the BMW and the DCT and the A3. And, of course, the uh, hybrid system now standard in the UX for 2023. So among those options for entry-level luxury vehicles, the Integra is by far going to be the most enjoyable to drive if you get the manual. Now, this is a fairly large vehicle. It's 185 0.8 mm -hmm. inches long. It's going to be about 3,100 pounds, which is about 100 to 120 pounds more than a comparable Civic SI. Yes. Is it reasonable to compare it to something like a Cadillac CT4? Is, is that even a comparison that you would venture or is that totally off the beaten path? Yeah, that's a tricky one. Um, I mean, I probably would not cross shop them, but I would certainly buy the CT4 over the Integra. Um, the uh, CT4 is an odd construct from Cadillac. It was the means by which they could readjust the brand positioning of the ATS and the CTS uh, without actually redesigning the core of the vehicle. So the AT4 and the AT5, or sorry, CT4 and CT5 are really just the ATS and CTS refreshed, heavily refreshed. So it's a compact luxury sedan. It's on the outside more BMW 3 Series sized, it's rear wheel drive, etc. But they have now whacked thousands and thousands of dollars off the price tag and said this is the answer to the A3, the A220, the CLA, etc. And in that instance, it, it makes sense for Cadillac because the pricing is right on target finally. Performance is excellent, so lots of reasons to buy it. I'm just not sure how many people would honestly cross shop it against an Integra. Um, I think that if you're the casual luxury shopper that's simply interested in transportation and a logo, then all of these options might seem equal. And to some folks, actually, the Integra might be better than the Cadillac. But if you're looking for driving enjoyment in this segment, it's going to be found essentially exclusively in the Cadillac line. If I would put its driving nature and dynamics uh, easily ahead of all of the rest of them. Now, there's one thing that the Cadillac will never have, and that is a Honda shift linkage. A lot has been mm -hmm. said about the box in this new Integra. Um, you're not looking at a very fast vehicle, or at least quick vehicle. It's going to be somewhere between seven and a half, eight seconds to 60, 200 horsepower to move 3,100 pounds. But every review I've seen says that this is not a numbers car. It feels great. It's responsive. The box is a dream. Like, mm -hmm. this is a sensations car. Would you agree That's with that? That's true. I would agree with that. You know, Honda's always had a good manual transmission shift feel. Um, I know this is somewhat of a controversial statement, but actually I prefer the shifter feel in the SI to the GTI, um, and I preferred it to the Golf R. Uh, it's six-speed manual as well. Honda does a good job with, with the shifter feel. The throw length feels right. 
Uh, the clutch pedal feels good, and the clutch pedal positioning is good as well. Um, if you are more of a fan of, of heel-toe driving, um, it's a little bit more doable in the Civic Si than in some modern manual transmission vehicles. And I would say it's definitely better than than the uh, Elantra N or the Kona N or the uh, Veloster N in terms of its six-speed manual transmission feel as well. And that's a really good position for, for Acura to be in because it's not really a performance vehicle, but it has a really engaging feel. So it's not trying to be, you know, an RS model from Act from Audi or a, uh, you know, the the N models from Hyundai, etc. So I think that's a good place for them to be in that middle ground there. And it's not a Type S. It's not a Type R. It's mm -hmm. it's the beginning. It's not the end. Yeah, I will say that Acura has resisted. They, they seem offended by suggesting that there could be a Type R Integra at some point later, even though there have been Acuras with Type R designations in the past. Um, but I would say that I would not be surprised if there was a Type S at some point, because they're going all in on Type S, really shying away from Type R, now saying that they, they believe it's going to be more of an exclusive Honda logo thing. So now, in terms of availability, everyone everywhere, regardless of where the car is being made and you know that that that's changing as well. Mm -hmm. What kind of availability did Acura mention? Are they confident they'll be able to fulfill orders and bring this to market on time? <laughs> uh, on time, yes. Uh, fulfill orders and meet targets. No one is sure. Let's be honest. In today's world, it's very unclear uh, if any manufacturer is really going to meet their production targets for specific models or just for their entire brand, um, and that's that's a universal problem. Um, I would not be surprised, though, if Acura was pretty close with the the Integra in terms of sales volume in the first year. It's probably going to stick close to what ILX was. Uh, they are, again, manufacturing in the United States, as you said, so that could give them a little bit more flexibility because of delivery times, etc. But I, I, I expect that all the initial reservation hold, holders are going to be uh, satisfied as far as their reservation uh, within about a year would be my expectation. Finishing up with the Integra, tell me one thing that exceeded your expectations and one thing that fell short. One thing that I, I think it looks better in person than I expected it to. Um, so I'd say that's what exceeded my expectations. The proportions of the TLX can be a little bit funky because it has a really long hood, but it's not because it has you know, a long wheelbase. It's because it has a really long front overhang. And then they decided to also change the dash to axle ratio, which gives it this kind of unusual cartoonish-like front end. It's kind of like the car that I might have driven as a, as a little kid. Um, and the, the Integra, because of the four-cylinder engine choice under the hood, and everything just being more compact, it actually has a more appropriate profile, I would say. Uh, and I like the sport back lift back thing. That's that's a really great design. Um, where it fell short, I honestly think is the power. I wish it had had 250 horsepower. That would have made it more competitive with the Germans. Um, and if I had a, a, a second complaint, it would be the CVT. Not because of true functionality, it's smoother than the transmission that we find in the Mercedes. It's because I think it's distracting for Honda. Um, and it would probably have just been better if they had put a DC, spent the extra money, put a DCT in it, put a regular automatic transmission in it, whatever. So that way we wouldn't be having this conversation around the CVT, which I suspect the average shopper is never going to really care about once they've bought it. But in all the reviews that are out there, everybody's going to be complaining about it. And it may cause some of them to say, maybe I'll look somewhere else. Okay. 
Now, these are interesting times, and the Integra might be a good car for our times because it's efficient. It's a Honda. Uh, you know, pricing is aggressive. But really, when you get down to it, having a 1.5-liter turbocharged engine is all about balancing efficiency with performance. Now, we've got a couple of performance-oriented, fuel-efficient cars that we've selected uh, to suggest to our viewers and also to perhaps dream a little bit. Alex, get us started off. What kind of a fuel-efficient car, for fun, not for utilitarian mm -hmm. purposes, would you pick in this day and age? Yeah, I was torn here because uh, we decided to leave this topic a little bit broad and not specifically say electric plug-in hybrid or hybrid, etc. So with that in mind, uh, I would say a 330i is a good solid middle road option here. You know, it's it's rear wheel drive. It's pretty efficient. You can get just about 30 miles per gallon out on the highway. The EPA average for city highway combined is just a little bit below that. And it's a lot of fun to drive. Um, the 330i currently has so much power that it's faster than, you know, the six cylinder versions of the three series from several generations ago. So if you've, if you haven't been in a recent BMW in a while, you're not going to miss necessarily the twin turbo power power that you'd find in the 340i and you'd spend less and get better fuel economy. Yeah. Now cars are so fast today. It's, it's hard to believe that buying even a mid range three series is going to deliver the kind of performance you would have associated with an M car back in the 1990s. Mm -hmm. Uh, and also, frankly, some cars will surprise with their efficiency. Uh, that's why initially I was going to pick the Ford Mustang EcoBoost with the performance package because on paper it seems very competitive. The problem is I checked real-world fuel economy for the EcoBoost <laughs> Mustang. Yeah. It's going to be like 19 miles per gallon in the real world despite yep. a 2.3-liter turbo. So I asked myself, if I were to take mid-40s money, which is what you would have to spend to really option up an EcoBoost with performance package and Magnaride, you can go out and get a Volkswagen Arteon, which is a car that first, A, exists. Second, has 300 horsepower and 295 That's pounds. quite the Volkswagen commercial. Volkswagen, we exist. It, this exists. Not only does it exist, it's a lot of fun. It's a lift back German performance sedan. It's rated at 2131, and I checked real-world fuel economy. People with last year's Ardeon are typically getting high 20s, low 30s mm -hmm. in the real world. So from a practical standpoint, this is going to be a little bit more adult than something like even a Golf R. It's got basically the same power plant. It's got the same Haldex all-wheel drive system. It is not a small vehicle. It is over 190 inches long, and it's got a 111-inch wheelbase. So you can actually take people and things out in the Arteon. It's super rare. It may as well be a Lamborghini because you're going to see more... <laughs> I'm not even kidding you. Here in the Northeast, you will see more Lamborghini Urus out on the road than you will see Arteons. You will see more of Lambo's SUV than you see this sedan, I swear. And mid-40s gets you pretty much a decked-out model. So that would be my first choice. Ah, interesting twist there. Um, I would be willing to say MX-5 is is a solid option to be on your list as well. Um, you know, whether you want to call it a sports car or not, sometimes I tease the MX-5 for not being a sports car since it's not fast. Um, you know, the Mazda Miata, MX-5, whatever you want to call it, not fast at all. You know, a V6 Camry is going to whip it off the line every time. Um, V6 Camry with summer tires may actually be faster around a track than an MX-5 as well, depending on the track. Um, but the MX-5 is definitely fun. It's cute. It's convertible. Um, not overly pragmatic, but it does have a trunk and it has a second seat. 
Yeah, the MX-5 is a great choice. I think it is a sports car because traditionally, you know, if you go back to endurance racing in the 1950s and the 1960s, they always had a category called the index of performance, which was basically a way for a very small engined British car to win a prestigious award. It was the most performance, the, the farthest distance traveled relative to your engine size. And so this is in <laughs> that tradition of sports car, not the tire shredding mm -hmm. tradition of sports cars. Uh, you're going to get with and you know you're going to get better fuel economy with an auto in a mazda mx5 so i said it but you're still going to get 26 in the city and 34 on the highway with a manual transmission mx5 and if you can't mm -hmm. deal with you know the petite ragtop thing you can get the rf that would be my choice and you're going to get it pretty well stocked in the mid 30s so you're not going to break the bank either you're just not going to be able to take anyone or anything anywhere yes that's true Okay, so now if you want to take stuff and people around, um, for me, the closest living descendant, like the, the direct line from the 1980s and 1990s hot hatch on the market today is the subcompact Hyundai Veloster. Now, the Veloster is much smaller than something like a Golf R. It is a tiny vehicle. Mm -hmm. It is 100 and I want to say like 67 inches long on a 104 inch wheelbase. So it's a subcompact rather than a compact, but you're still going to get 275 horsepower. If you go with the N, uh, it's not going to be the most efficient vehicle. I'm cheating a little bit here because it's combined fuel economy is 25. And if you get the DCT, it's going to be 22, which yeah. is a separate issue, but you're going to get a cool, Make that weird three-door subcompact hot hatch that's got almost 280 pound-feet of torque driving a crazy-ass front-wheel drive setup, monstrous torque steer, ELSD, lots of fun, and $33,000 pretty much gets you everything because it comes one way, loaded. You just have to choose the manual transmission. That would be my next choice. Yeah, I would have to say uh, I like the Veloster N. Uh, sadly, it apparently is going to be going the way of the Dodo Bird here, though, because it's being replaced by the other N products. Uh, not efficient, though, so I'm not sure if that really fits the brief here. Um, I would say Audi A7 plug-in hybrid, though, uh, is the way probably I would buy an A7. Uh, 26 miles of electric range, 335 horsepower, the dual-clutch transmission combined with the electric motor. Um, I actually quite like Audi's plug-in hybrid system with their DCT, so I would definitely put one of those on my list. Yeah, that's an interesting choice because we didn't really define whether there were price points for this. So in, in theory, we can go all the way up to something like a Tesla Model 3 Performance, which I don't know, that just seems like cheating to me. I think the idea here was that there'd be some sort of value proposition. But let's say you want to just pay hey, the, the A7 plug-in hybrid has a tax credit and it's less expensive than an RS7. Well, there you go. <laughs> it's less expensive than an RS7. But is it less expensive than an RS3? Because in theory, you can buy one of those for $60,000. And again, I go by practical fuel economy, which is why... You know, a lot of people out in the real world will do much better than the roughly, you know, 19 to 28 that it's rated by the EPA. A lot of people will consistently do high 20s, low 30s, which is why if you go on Fuelly, you can find that most people are getting somewhere between uh, 23 and 35, which is damn good for something that has 401 horsepower. If you go easy with this car, 
it can be an efficient machine getting high 20s, maybe even 30 miles to gallon on your commute. It is not cheap at 60,000 to get the party started. But at the same time, if you want real performance, like sub four seconds, zero to 60, you're not looking at too many cars that can do that with an internal combustion engine and also give you acceptable fuel economy. Plus you're getting a sedan. It has at least a modicum of practicality. Uh, it is an Audi, which means the interior is probably gonna be better than a BMW 2 Series Grand Coupe or Mercedes A-Class within that mm -hmm. price yep. range. And it is genuinely fast, like 3.4 seconds back in the 90s. If you wanted to beat that with a car that was stock, you needed a McLaren F1. Uh, now, today, maybe in the world of all-wheel drive EVs, that's no longer as mind-bending as it was. But again, you can get to 100 in 8.6 seconds. And again, my frame of reference is always the 90s. That was full-blown supercar territory back Let's then. Let's see. So your, uh, your RS3 is how much? Starts at 60. Okay. So with a few doodads, maybe a little bit more than 60, but you could get an RS7 plug-in hybrid, or sorry, an S7 plug-in hybrid for 75.9, and it would have the $7,500 federal tax credit on it. And then you could feel uh, green superior by driving 26 miles on electricity. But you can do your best Michel Mouton impression with a five-cylinder engine in the RS3. <laughs> and Michel. then let's see here. I actually was having troubles figuring out what I might get after that. I put down, I might get a plug-in hybrid S60 because the plug-in hybrid S60 for 2022 has 41 miles of electric range, 455 horsepower, because it got the same bump as the rest of the recharge lineup. Um, and it will do zero to 60 well under five seconds. Okay, well, that's legit. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to argue the point, not after I suggested a Veloster N, especially <laughs> especially a manual transmission Veloster N. I actually like that idea. I think there are a lot of like off-the-radar cars that could have made this. Uh, there's nothing more fun than trying to control a car that has far too little tire contact patch. And so, in theory, a BMW i3s, remember, that was the fast mm -hmm. one. Uh, can't you can't buy them anymore, though. You can't, but you can buy them used for like four oh. grand. Well, if we could include used cars, then I would have said, why not I-8? Why I-3? Oh, you know, you're not you're not wrong. We didn't set a price point. You know, <laughs> I mean, you probably pick up like a 2014, 15 for like 65 grand at this point, like half the original price. Apparently, we need better rules for these segments. Yeah. Uh, OK, well, there there we go. So let's move into a realm where no rules are just right. Let's talk about what current cars and recent cars might be classics. I don't mean Pebble Beach, but what's mm. really cool to take to Cars and Coffee in 20 years from this era? That is an interesting question. Um, define, what, what, what traits make a classic car? I think you show up to a Saturday morning parking lot car show and more people than not will smile. Because, of course, the, the definition insurance-wise for a classic car is simply something that's 25 years old or something like that. So uh, that is the, defining that classic that that buff books would call classics that, you know, you'd, you'd want to call Haggerty and get their most expensive insurance policy on, etc. I think it's a little bit like reading the Ouija board somehow. Okay. Well, then I'm going to propose that a couple of things play into classic status. Rarity is one. Mm -hmm. I would also sure. say that there has to be some sort of enthusiast factor. 
it doesn't have to be fast, but performance definitely helps. I think what it needs is romance, and romance can mm -hmm. come from many things. Style. Um, it could be associated with glamorous people. It could be high performance. It could be something that won gloriously on the racetrack or something you put on your wall that was on a poster when you were a kid. So I'm going to say the 2016 to 2022 Acura NSX is a great example of that. They made 18,000 yeah. first-generation NSXs, and yet you look at the value and interest there. That is already a classic. So production is being closed this year. We will see yeah. fewer than 3,000 NSXs made in the current generation. It looks like it's going to be about 2,900 cars, 350 Type S. That, that's the runout. That's the last of them out of Marysville, Ohio. We have 600 horsepower in the Type S. We have all-wheel drive. We have something that was at least technically significant. It was one of the first hybrid alternative propulsion supercars. Um, it looks cool, more so after 2019, because you get mm -hmm. the blacked-out grill crest and you know the body color elements replacing the weird chrome beak. And then finally, I think that there is going to be a romance here because it is a poster car. It is something that you would have read about on the cover of the magazine. Mm -hmm. um, it, it does have a racing history. It, it did win an IMSA championship. Um, it it, it yep. was, yeah, I mean, it is a legitimate race car. So yeah, I'm torn on the NSX. Um, I've driven it a bunch of times on the track, off the track, oddly enough on snow, because hey, Acura had some money to blow. And, um, and uh, I'm really torn on the NSX. I have somehow have troubles believing it will be a classic. Although that was actually one of the first things that came to my mind when we were talking about the sub subject. Um, I just, I'm, I'm just intrigued to see if anybody will be interested in it later because so few people were interested in it when it was alive, I guess, you know, it may be that, maybe that artist that is relatively obscure in life and somehow, you know, interesting in death, I'm not sure. Um, I also kind of wonder if if things like uh, slightly more popular vehicles, more affordable ones like the Alfa Romeo Giulia, um, when it you know got resurrected in this generation for America, if that could be a classic in the future, because it does look beautiful still, um, sold in slightly higher volume, but still a little little niche, a little obscure, and it's mainly for the enthusiast, which definitely helps when it comes to thinking about what might be a classic. Uh, someday. It, people have to be interested in it. It has, it has to have a following, at least initially. And if you're willing to put yourself through the pain of Alfa Romeo ownership, you must really be an enthusiast um, because they're obviously not overly reliable. Um, but they are really pretty and they're fun to drive. What I think is going to happen is exactly what you say, that Julia will be a classic. And here's the thing, the combination of marginal reliability and a low profile and high maintenance costs will result in a lot of these things being driven until the wheels fall off. They will not be maintained. So you start mm -hmm. with a low population of these from low initial sales. Combine like an old AMG's life cycle of eventually being used until it's worn out and scrapped and parted out. You will have so few of these that are still in I don't laugh. It's going to happen. So few of these are still going to be in like number one and number two condition in 15 to 20 years that by virtue of rarity alone, 
having a good one that's well sorted mm -hmm. and low miles will make you able to name your price. This is a car that will have its day long after most of them have degraded to the point of like mm -hmm. raw material scrapping. And this leads us to the eternal question of can an electric car ever be a classic? You know, as we're starting to see electric cars, there there is a certain niche value to them. Like, could the original Tesla Roadster be a classic in that same way that we think of, you know, 1960s, 1970s classic cars? Because uh, obviously everything technically, according to the insurance company from 1960 or 1970, could be a classic car, but nobody's waxing poetic over the Nova. Well, here's the thing. The, the Tesla Roadster as the first product from the most, and, and I'm no Elon Musk fan, but it was the first product from the most consequential car brand of the 21st century. Everything that is on the market today, from the Mustang Mach-E, the F-150 Lightning, to the BMW iX, literally every EV that's being sold today is, is there because of Tesla. It's because they proved there was a market for upscale, profitable, mainstream electric cars. And the Roadster is an interesting one because it was very low volume. It's got a fun Lotus association. So mm -hmm. while it's not a purebred, it comes from two purebred lines. Um, and again, there's going to be that maintenance issue where I think a lot of them are going to yeah. be allowed to go to seed. And it's going to be very difficult. I don't know if it's going to be mm -hmm. as hard as maintaining like a, an EV1 or a Chrysler turbine car. But you do wonder how... Yeah them going with zero tech support from Tesla, especially when we talk about batteries and power controllers. It's going to be pretty close because they don't even use the same chargers as modern Teslas or anything else. Um, is That's part of the interesting twist there with the original Roadsters, unless you've converted them. Um, so, you know, lifespan is definitely a, a problem there for that. Um, the pedigree is an interesting question since it's a Lotus that was electrified by Tesla. Um, does that mean that, you know, a Fiat could be a, uh, a classic one day, the Fiat 124 Spider, um, or is that too much Mazda in your Fiat to be a classic? Does that preclude classicness? I, well, I would ask, what are the current market prices of a Saab 92X? Mm -hmm. <laughs> the WRX Saab. I mean, I, I think that at least it's kind of a cool car. I think people will forgive that. I think the challenge with the Tesla is going to be keeping them going. And I think it's going to be like Duesenberg's at Pebble Beach, mm -hmm. where you've got these cars that are worth an absolute fortune because of their historic value. But the chance that any one of them will actually be able to start up and drive into its own car transporter is like 50-50. I've heard people say yeah. they've never witnessed a Duesenberg moving under its own power. Uh, and, and I think that's going to be the way it is with these Teslas. I think they're going to be worth a fortune. But if it's you have a lot of custom replacements. Yeah, I mean, completely aftermarket drivetrains, if you actually want to keep them running and moving, mm -hmm. if you want to keep them entirely original, you're going to satisfy yourself with having all the parts in place and none of them work. Yeah. And there's that that question of, uh, you know, if I, if I rebuild an engine in a classic Mustang, that's considered okay. But an engine swap, that's that's a different level of classic change, you know. And then resto mod, you know, that's a whole other world there. Um, and so where will this line be drawn with potential future classic EVs? Can I replace just the battery and that's okay? Um, you know, what happens if uh, I need to rewind the motor? Is that okay versus replacing the motor? You know, where are these, where's, where's the line we don't know in, in the future? That's going to be an interesting uh, thing to chart as 
as some important EVs, like I would argue actually the original Model S, the first year, few years of production of Model S are more important for the automotive industry generally than the original Roadster was. Um, I mean, remember that Leaf was first first, but yeah. all the other cars after are really modeled after the Model S. Um, you know, the way that Tesla chose to target performance, target range, um, have dual motors for all-wheel drive, those were very significant things that we didn't see anybody else planning at the moment. Um, and of course, they popularized the front trunk, which everybody must have now in an EV. I think if you've got a functional Chrysler turbine car or EV1, you can name your price. <laughs> and I think in 20 years, if you have a functional all original Roadster and you've somehow managed to get all of those parts through the decades still functional and intact, you'll be able to name your price. I think there will be a driver category where you can rewind a motor, replace a battery or even sub in more modern inverters. Uh, but, but I think for Pebble Beach, the standard will be everything in place and correct whether it works or not. I think there's a Pebble Beach standard for every car and then yeah. there's the driver standard. I think the driver will be for the guy who wants to be able to use it at Pebble Beach. If you don't have the original like expired and dead batteries in there, uh, you'll lose points and, and people will know. The judges will know. Yeah, that's going to be an interesting question to see how that how rules might adapt over time. I mean, we'll probably be dead by the time a, a roadster is at Pebble Beach. Um, but, but it is it is a theory. You know, it's it's got to happen at some point. It, it will happen without a doubt. And I think mm -hmm. it will happen sooner rather than later. It's like for the Baseball Hall of Fame, if you get in on the first ballot, it means you are one of the best of the best. I think some cars, the second they become eligible for Pebble, are going to be there. The Roadster is going to be one of them. Mm -hmm. So I have another classic car here, and this is another one from our bizarro early EV transitional power category, and that is the 2016 Cadillac ELR with hmm. the performance package. Yeah. 545 of these were made. That's every 2016 ELR. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure how many had the performance pack, but I will tell you this. It's a genuinely fun car to own on its own merits. The interior is great. It looks like a concept car. It's got almost 400 pound-feet of torque, wild torque steer, a crazy thing to try to control. You've got Brembo's, you've got summer performance tires, you've got forged alloys. And uh, who knows, perhaps in the cities of the future, you will have like zero emission city centers, like Manhattan might be all EV. And it might make for quite a classic to have something that can actually go into that environment as a classic car and go out without paying some sort of tax or being barred altogether. I think the ELR is a car that will look better as we get farther and farther from its on sale date and its ridiculous and exorbitant original MSRP. Mm -hmm. I think it's something that's so cool to look at and to be in and to be around that the rarity will put it over the top and people will want it. They were interesting. I know someone who actually has an ELR who deliberately sought out an ELR and bought one because they were so incredibly cheap. Uh, towards the end, they were they were practically paying people to get rid of them. He ended up with $20,000 off MSRP and 0% financing for a bazillion years on his ELR, um, which at the time ended up bringing it pretty close to a Chevy Volt in terms of pricing um, on which it's based. Um, so but they're obviously less practical than the Bolt was was the problem, and not overly swift. Um, no. Unless I, you go with the 2016, which was quicker. Quicker, yeah, er, not a lot, not a lot quicker. Let's be honest. Um, in that vein, if we're talking about things that aren't produced now but recently, I would Cadillac XLR over ELR. 
um, you know, the old old vet come Cadillac. That made a lot of sense to me, and I don't understand why Cadillac didn't do a second generation ELR or XLR. Um, they claimed that it didn't sell as well as they would have liked, but honestly, its price tag was high, and it sold just about as well as the Europeans with high price tags. So I I thought that that was a, a good alternative. Now, I do wish they had just ditched the Cadillac engine and just kept the Corvette engine in it. That would have made more sense to me, and you just have a luxury Corvette. Um, the North Star thing without the supercharger wasn't the best idea, but you know, once they got faster, actually, I, I quite liked it. Yeah, it's a very cool car. It looks fantastic. Like the ELR, it's got everything on its side style-wise. Uh, it is a Corvette, so while it's an automatic transmission, you know, you're still looking at a remarkably well-balanced platform. Mm -hmm. it's, it's basically a C6 underneath, and uh, particularly with the Cadillac engine, I, I find that almost gives it a degree of distinction because it's been a long time since General Motors divisions had their own exclusive power plants. Mm -hmm. And the North Star, especially in supercharged guys, uh, no other GM division ever used the supercharged North Star. It was a different engine. It was smaller displacement. Yep. It, had, uh, it had thicker walls between the cylinder bores. It was sand cast. It was an honest God reliable North Star. It was actually the North Star fully sorted in high performance. I think the bottom, the market bottom for the ELR, XLR V, the XLR V certainly has already passed. Those are now going up in value. I think people know what they've got with those. Uh, for Oddly, a bunch of Cadillacs are on this list because I've also got the CT6V, the car that they made for one and a half model years with the engine they made for one and a half model years, the Blackwing. I don't see how yeah. this does become a collectible. I'm torn on the CT6V. Um, it was always so expensive for what you got. Yes. Um, I would. I would have put. I would put the first generation of the new body style on the X, Jaguar XJ above it for me. Um, you know, when when they finally stopped looking like an old man's car and had the very modern, sleek look, that I think would be a classic before before the uh, the CT6. Because the CT6, it's just it's got the, the mystique of that that engine on its side. Mm -hmm. It has the monster mill, the 550 horsepower twin turbo hot V V8 that was made for maybe a few months. If you look at actual engine, yeah, not very long, exactly. It's like a year and a half in a few months. Um, and this is a really cool top of the line car that has the ultimate bloodline. I was talking about exclusive Cadillac engines, but mm -hmm. from what I understand, the CT6. V had both an exclusive Cadillac platform never used by another GM division mm -hmm. and an engine never used yep. by another GM division. This is like 1957 in the Eldorado Brome. And while it didn't have quite the mystique of the Brome, you mm -hmm. know, the Brome in its day was also overpriced for what it was. Um, you know, today, if you want to talk about the greatest American cars of the 50s, you're going to talk about things like the Lincoln Continent or the Continental Mark II, Eldorado Brome, Packard Caribbean. Mm -hmm. You know, it's in that discussion. And I think the right. CT6 was always a great chassis looking for more power. And, and that's the ultimate endorsement of the CT6V. Right at the end of the line, it became what it should have been from the beginning. Yeah, the CT6 was just so ultimately compromised in a way as, and as, an, as an entry in its segment was, was always odd because there was supposed to be the CT8 that never happened. Um, and the CT6 was based on the Omega platform, which was a, a, a variant of the Alpha. So it's, you know, it's not exactly the brother of the CT4 and CT5, but it's a very, very close cousin. 
uh, maybe half-brother, I guess you could say, to those others because it was a larger, enlarged platform there. But it, it suffered from all the same deficiencies of the alpha platform. You know, crazy small trunk, tiny back seat, et cetera. Um, the packaging just was not great in the CT6. It was nice to drive, and it did have the hybrid, which was also pretty cool. They are the plug-in hybrid CT6, which for some reason they never used in anything again. Um, but yeah, it was that was an odd duck from GM. You know, the funny thing is you could go like all day long with weird GM cars that were built in small numbers that were going to be super collectible. Like if you mm -hmm. look at the current Camaro ZL1 1LE, you've got spool valve shocks, 650 horsepower, urethane bushings, and a vehicle that is so punishing on the road that if you combine that ZL1 with the 1LE, the yearly production of this vehicle is hundreds, not thousands. And mm -hmm. $75,000 for a Camaro, even today in this inflated market, remains absolutely ruinous. It is a difficult vehicle to move because for that price, you're talking at least yeah. at retail, C8 Corvette. You know, you're talking about a loaded 718 that's really well equipped. It's a difficult sell. And just like the most extreme radio delete, air conditioning delete, 1960s big block muscle cars, you've sort of got that dynamic in terms of both performance and rarity with the ZL1 1LE of this generation. Because no one buys a sixth generation Camaro. Literally, no one's buying the most expensive mm -hmm. sixth generation Camaro. I wonder if that's too odd for the future in a way. The problem with high performance Camaros has always been the existence of the Corvette, really. Um, you know, if you if once you get there, it no matter the year we're talking about, once you take a look at any of the high performance versions of it, um, even back when SS is as high as you could go, why would you do that when you could get a Corvette? Or you know, back when you know the Z twenty eight, or not Z twenty eight. Um, I'm thinking IROC Ziera. <laughs> you know, back back then when when that was when that was as high as you could go. Um, you know, the Corvette wasn't really that much more expensive. So why not just Corvette? Well, you know, the thing about the Corvette is the Corvette has its own dynamics. There just aren't a lot of really low take rate, super high performance mm -hmm. Corvettes these days. Everyone right. knows when a ZR1 lands these days that this is your opportunity to buy the collector car. And while that doesn't make a C6 or, God help us, a C7 ZR1 common, at least people understood right from the beginning why they were important and worth buying and keeping. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure people have done the logical deduction and worked out just how rare these ZL1 1LE sixth generation Camaros are going to be. I don't think people are aware of it. And there have been great low take rate, high performance Corvettes in the past. If you've got an original 1970 to 72 ZR1, which is the LT1 solid lifter small block with the high performance package, again, that term name your price definitely applies. And I don't think there's anything like that today in the Corvette lineup that's flying so far below the yeah. radar or so extreme that today's buyers won't even touch it. I do think we've got that going on with Camaro, especially as the Camaro approaches its sunset. It's going to be like the NSX back in 2001, 2, 3, 4, 5, where they're moving like eight of them a month or less. It's going to be very low. This leads to my next thought, which is uh, what is going to be the modern BMW 2002? Like what's going to be what's going to be that sort of vehicle from the lineup now? You know, I think you got to go back a few years. I, I think everyone already understands the value of the 1M. 
I think people knew from the beginning that was going to be special and the market price of that reflects it now. I don't think people realize how much the 135 is going to appeal down the line. This was ba I mean, this was a remarkably high performance little car. Mm -hmm. A lot of fun. The 2002 was never an M car. You know, you could get it with a turbo, you could get it with fuel injection, but it was never a tire scorching, ultra high performance track weapon. Um, the 1M is that. I think if you look at something like a 135 with a manual transmission, you've got something that is probably the heir to the legacy of the 2002. Um, if you look at like a two-door 2002 and you look at a 135, it had a very short production run. BMW quickly concluded that there was no mass market mm -hmm. for a vehicle that small in its lineup. That's why we have the two series and not the one series today. Um, in today's BMW lineup, it would have to be some sort of two series. But if you want the true successor to what like the 2002 was, I, I think it's already passed. And I think it was that inline six yeah. 135. The other problem with with the the one series for BMW was also they realized they wanted to make an M, but they decided they couldn't call it an M one. True. But so yeah, they hey, had to make a it a two. Thing. That's <laughs> not a bad thing. We we leave the door open to like a bonkers like EV hybrid or mm -hmm. pure EV M one. That could still happen. That probably will happen. Just give them a nice round number anniversary, like fifty years since the M one. It'll happen. Mark my words. And it, you know, it's it could it's probably going to be an electric thing, and maybe the SUV. You know, we'll see what they do with their upcoming M SUV. Uh, that's going to be interesting to see exactly what form M takes over the centuries here. All right, everybody, it's time for a new segment that we're temporarily calling Automotive Table Tennis. If you have a better suggestion for the name of this segment, you can always email us at itsaconspiracy at alexandautos.com. Take it away, Brian. All right, I'm going to kick things off by doing a virtual uh, coin toss here. All right, I've got heads. Who got heads? That would be me. I'll be honest. All right, Alex, you're going to start by defending the following statement. Tim will uh, respond with a rebuttal, and then we will switch each person's going to have 45 seconds to either defend or uh, rebut, if you will. Uh, the first com or the first statement is the yoke style steering wheel is better than the original alternative. Okay. Um, and go. Wow. Uh, newer is always better. And it doesn't matter whether newer is actually not as good of an idea. It's always actually still better. So who needs that upper part of the steer? Who needs the lower part of the steering wheel? All you really need is, do we even need a yoke? I mean, maybe we don't even need this. Maybe we just need some sort of small, tiny stick that we're going to stab ourselves with as we're steering the car. Not entirely clear, but the yoke is still better. I mean, who needs to do three-point turns? If you're three-point turning or four-point turning or five-point turning, you have bad planning. Maybe you just shouldn't do this. Maybe you shouldn't be driving. You could go around the block. You could uh, do some consecutive left turns or consecutive right turns. There's no necessary. Uh, need for this uh, hand shuffling thing there. And, uh, you know, while we're at it, no stocks either. Why do we need pedals? No pedals, right, no switch. stocks, no buttons. Ooh, that's a barrage. Um, well, first of all, yoke rhymes with joke, which this thing is. They say don't reinvent the wheel, and this is not a wheel by any means. You can reach straight out in a panic and grab nothing but air. It's almost like Elon Musk is trying to invent new ways to crash and burn. Autopilot, the yoke, his bid for an apparently unmoderated Twitter, all of that. And frankly, with the yoke, you better expect egg on your face. Elon, I'm talking to you. <laughs> wow. Unbelievable. <laughs> I, I could have mentioned Amber Heard, but I didn't. 
<laughs> uh, man, I mean, we'd, we would have to give you more time. I mean, gosh, you, wow, okay. All righty, then. The next statement, CVT transmissions are the worst kind of transmission. Oh, now I'm going to be defending that CVTs are the worst kind of transmission. I'm going to come right out and say that a transmission that feels like a limp noodle is never going to serve anyone. You don't know how hard your engine is working, how hard your car is accelerating. You have no sense of touch, communication, connection to the accelerator. Anything that makes you more distant from the control is bad. Whether you're a rank and file commuter or you're some sort of an enthusiast, just say no to CVTs. This is, this is a little too on the nose here, Brian. So I'm blamed oh. as being a CVT apologist. Uh-oh. Uh, so uh, let's go here. So, uh, right. you know, hey, if it's good enough for F1, and if it's so good that F1 had to ban it, then I want more of that in every car. I want my Corvette with a CVT. I want my 911 with a CVT. You know, I want my Alphas, my, my Ferraris and Lamborghini. All of them should have CVTs all the time. Um, and it should be as rubbery as possible. I mean, it should be as Nissan Sentra-like in its delivery of power as humanly possible. Um, I want to know that I'm accelerating because my engine is just singing up there at 8,000 RPM. That's where they sound the best anyway. So why would I ever want to shift? Why would I want the engine to and then have to go back up to its you know glorious 8,000 RPM note when it could just hang out there as you're going you know along the freeway? I mean, that's that's how it, everything should be. All right, I got to stop you there. That was just, oh, man. CVT is the three-letter, four-letter word. Wow, yes. They they serve Agreed. a place. They serve a place. They do. All righty. Touchpad-style infotainment controllers, a la the old Lexus N-Form or the current Acura TrueTouch system, they really are that bad. Oh, so I get to defend that they're that bad. Oh, my yes. goodness, yes. They really right. are that bad. I mean, what is the point, really? This mousy thing? Because trackpads are so glorious that everybody dreams of a trackpad someday. The only we had, only reason we have one on a laptop is because a real mouse wouldn't fit there. It'd be hard to pack, et cetera. And no one needs that in an infotainment system. I don't want to look at the thing and I want to stab it on the screen. I don't need a control pad. I don't need a knob. Everybody has finally realized this except for Mazda and Acura, you know, who have control knobs and trackpads and things like that. At least Lexus got the memo and gave us an actual touchscreen because that thing was probably the worst input method I have ever seen in my life. You got 10 more seconds. You want to fill oh, it in? Uh, I, I often refer to internally the old Lexus trackpad as the spawn of Satan. Ah, perfect. We had a t-shirt design uh, actually built around the Lexus trackpad, and I thought it was a little too edgy, so we never released it. Mm, probably for the best. All right, Tim, go. I'm going to come out and say that this is all for the kids. These these trackpads, they may be challenging, but the kids are into that. After all, we've heard that young people prefer phones to cars. Why not make the car as engrossing as the worst possible phone? You've really got to get focused and engrossed and involved. Plus, driving tests are now way too easy. Manual transmissions are dead. You can open your car with your phone. You can start it without pushing a button. Why not make things hard again to really test the drivers of the future? Bad interfaces do just that. <laughs> you have 10 more seconds as well. You have any last words? The worse, the better. Okay. So awesome. so maybe, maybe the whole car maybe needs to be a trackpad. Maybe the trackpads need to be bigger. People need to think... get engaged with their vehicles and we're starting the youth the right way. What's more engaging than something that doesn't work the first four or five times? <laughs> maybe, uh, maybe when Apple finally brings out the Apple car, they'll bring back the click wheel. And they'll have that. <laughs> now that would be something. 
Maybe it'll be shaped like the Apple Macintosh Cube. Remember that? Ooh. Oh, yes. Yes. The Ford Mustang Mach-E is not a proper Mustang. So I'm, I'm going to defend this notion that it's not a proper Mustang. And this is easy because, first of all, Mustangs have to be loud and obnoxious. This is neither. So automatic Mustang fail. Uh, second, Mustangs have to be appropriate for muscular moguls hanging out in their muscle shirts. It's all about flexing next to the car rather than driving the car. That's the whole Mustang mentality. It's image. It's what you do in proximity to the car. And when you're standing next to a crossover utility vehicle, you're profoundly uncool. It's like standing next to a Pacifica and flexing. It just doesn't fit the image. Mustangs have never been about driving. They've always been about image. And this one is the mom wagon or the daddy wagon equal opportunity offense perfect timing all right alex Alrighty. so uh it is a true mustang because all the true mustang owners that used to flex next to the mustang are now old and fat and they need a more comfortable vehicle to be in and they also need to be able to put their walker in the back and you can do all of that in the mustang mach-e and of course it actually has a little mustang on the front and a mustang on the back and ford calls it a mustang and everything that ford does and says must be correct because they created the mustang so therefore it is the truest mustang ever it's also faster than a whole lot of other mustangs and uh, you know it had it, it can go around corners about as well as a Mustang. You know, Mustangs are infamous for having shitty handling. So, you know, the Mach-E handles just about as well as any Mustang with the added benefit of all-wheel drive, which Mustangs should always have had uh, since the very beginning. So, uh, you know, if you're driving a Fox body and you're, uh, you know, waxing poetic about your 5.0, the Mach-E is just a better Mustang. The minivan is the best vehicle body style. Well, let's be perfectly honest. Wagons weren't cool until they certain, you know, suddenly were. What is a minivan but a bigger wagon? So naturally, if you're all about your Dodge Magnum SRT, your CTSV six-speed wagon, if you're all about AMGs with a liftback, let's face it, the minivan is just that only more so. You know, it, it's like a Unimog is a Galendo, a Galendowagen, but only more so. That's cool. Why isn't this? And then just think about it. The Pacifica Hybrid minivans, along with this new hybrid Sienna, they're truly electrifying in the truest sense of the word. Who wouldn't want to be electrified by a minivan? <laughs> wow. All right. And... Uh... Uh, minivans mean that you have given up on life. There is no reason that they should exist. Uh, there's no reason that you should ever pack that heavy. If you have so many children that you need a minivan to move them around, you really just should have considered adoption at some point or another because you could have uh, given that child to a family that had a crossover or a regular sedan and they needed to fill the back seat. And now you're just hogging all the children trying to put them in your minivan. Share them with the world, people. No <laughs> one needs a minivan. I mean, they're ugly, they're uncool. And, you know, the one benefit of them, I guess, is that if you have enough minivans in your family, you probably won't be able to reproduce anymore because it's going to make things shrivel. Nothing's going to function anymore. And then the species, uh, the, the future of the species is going to be at stake here if we continue this minivan thing. All right. Well, that has been Automotive Table Tennis. And I guess that's going to be all for me for now. Thank you guys for playing. Thank all right. Are. Thanks, Brian. Let's get back on to serious topics. could probably move to a topic that is, I know, one of passion for you. And I don't have the insight that you have on this, but I definitely understand one thing. 
it is almost impossible to gauge the reliability of a modern, newly assembled car in the scope of a short test. Every time mm -hmm. we talk about cars, as enthusiasts who are in the car space, people ask about reliability, and I just do not think you can spot check reliability in a modern car, especially when it's new. Yeah. Let's talk about how reliability is rated today and why it's not a huge part of auto buyer's guide. Yeah, reliability is an interesting construct. I mean, especially since we're dealing with new cars here, um, that that's why I frequently will avoid the discussion until the very end of a video when we're talking about, you know, predicted reliability, et cetera. It's likely going to be higher or lower. Um, but honestly, it's it's looking into a crystal ball because we can go by brand reputation and we know some brands have really rocky launches all the time. Some brands have very solid launches all the time, and some brands can be hit and miss. Um, you know, a good example of hit and miss is Ford. Sometimes their launches go perfectly. And sometimes we have a Ford Explorer launch, <laughs> which did not go perfectly. Um, and so, and you never know with Ford. Sometimes they're good, sometimes they're bad. Um, you know, you can bet that if the Italians launch a car, it's going to be a little bit of a rough road. Um, some same times the same thing with the with the um, the English brands, etc. Um, generally speaking, Toyota launches go pretty well, but they can have off years as well. CHR apparently not a good reliability track record somehow, even though it's so closely related to other products. They've also had a really hard time getting the new Tundra off the line. They've had some engine problems, etc. Um, that we did not see in the Lexus LS for some reason. Uh, so in every every you know cloud has a uh you know a little lightning bolt trying to come out it seems like um it so the problem with this is that you don't know for three or four years and by the time three or four years go by i'm not looking at the new car because it's old and i'm talking about the new thing so that is the one problem with new car reliability also the average owner average car on the road might be 10 years or over now 10 i think it's like 12 years now as far as the average age but the average first car buyer, the person that bought it first, generally keeps the vehicle somewhere between three and seven years. It's actually not as long as people plan on keeping their car. Even if you plan on driving the wheels off of it, things can change. And I have been there myself. You know, I, I bought a 2006 Volvo V70R and I ended up selling, selling it uh, after three years. Speaking of a car that might be a classic one day, now it is gone, it, it, uh, it may want to be. Um, and I plan to keep it a long time didn't end up happening for me. Um, and things like that happen time over time. So when we're talking about uh, reliability data and reliability metrics, there are a few things that that the average shopper needs to know. The first one is anecdotal evidence is not scientific. You know, that's part of my, my beef with some of the reliability discussions that happen online um, are, you know, I, I prefer actual data. So my buddy had a whatever that engine blew up. This is not actual data. This is one data point. Doesn't mean anything for the millions that are out there. Uh, discussions around like, um, you know, my buddy works in a truck shop, so he should know truck reliability. And all he does all day long is spend his day repairing Fords, Rams, and Chevys. Well, no, no wonder they sell more trucks than everybody else, like by a long, long, long stretch. So chances are, since they're, you know, 20, 20 uh, 19 out of 20 trucks on the road, they're going to be the ones in the repair shop, especially when we're talking about older trucks. Um, you know, Toyota has troubles cresting 100,000 units a year with a truck. And that means that the smallest volume producer of the American brands is outselling them by two to three or four to one. And, uh, you know, Ford is outselling them by, you know, practically 10 to one. 
So self-fulfilling prophecy is another important component. Um, and then we have, you know, actual reliability metrics and data out there, and some people like them and some people don't. And there's a lot of misunderstanding around how the data is collected and how it's dealt with. So the two big players, of course, are Consumer Reports and J.D. Power. And there's a lot of strong opinions on both sides for either of these data sets and data points for reliability. Now, it's important to remember that with Consumer Reports, you have a membership that self-reports defects. So that means you have a small, weirdly engaged and hypersensitive group of consumers who may not be representative of the exactly. mainstream buyer. And then with J.D. Power, the vast majority, you know, there's the saying there are no bad cars anymore. Bad cars are like the Yugo. Bad cars are like the Triumph Stag, the original version of the NSU R080. Like that is a bad car. Today... J.D. Power's standard for reliability is things that don't operate as you expect or as you like. And the vast majority of mm -hmm. defects are not rods through the block or total system failure like an Oldsmobile diesel from the 70s. It's going to be things like, I don't know how to use the interface. The cup holder is not big enough. Um, I rub my knuckle against the dash when I shift the car, like things like that. Exactly. And both J.D. Power and Consumer Reports, there is a segment, there's a, a component in their reliability metric for infotainment systems. And is it difficult to use, et cetera? You know, do I have a problem pairing my Bluetooth phone with the vehicle? Um, and there's an argument to be made. That as cars become more more gadgetized, more uh, you know more of a computer on wheels, that this kind of reliability is important. But I would argue that it should be separated from some of these metrics. So, for instance, on the JD Power side of things, uh, two things we should clear up right away are there is this misconception that JD Power is paid for their award and that you have to pay to win the award. This is absolutely not true. And companies that that win spots or not spots on the JD Power may or may not buy data from JD Power. But here's how JD Power's business model works. They go off of new car registrations and they cast a very wide net across the US and they send people surveys after 90 days and after the car has been owned for three years. Uh, those are the two core studies they have, the VDS and the IQS. So VDS is not the last three years of ownership, it is the third year of ownership, and IQS is 90 days, so you haven't had it for very long. IQS tends to skew more customer satisfaction, how do I like the car, how easy is it to use? So indicators there, they still call them problems per 100 vehicles. It's not really a true reliability survey in this way. But the reason that they sell data and the reason their business model works is that car companies will buy especially IQS data to find out how satisfied customers are with the vehicle, what might have actually physically gone wrong, how the dealer experience went, how the delivery went, um, you know, were there any, you know, scratches in the paint, that kind of thing on delivery, all that kind of stuff may be found on the VDS survey sorry, the IQS survey, and then manufacturers will buy the data if they want to drill down into it. So JD Power's business model is we cast this wide net, we do our reliability research from the customer, we publish our numbers, and if you Honda or Toyota or whoever want to know the nitty gritty detail so you can try and improve, then you may buy the data. Um, and pretty much all manufacturers except Tesla buy JD Power data. So we have to be clear on that front. So if there's a payment scheme going on, then I will just say Jeep is getting a really raw deal because they're always at the bottom and they're paying just like everybody else for the data. Um, 
But some car companies will definitely not game the system, but definitely work to try and improve metrics on this survey. And a good example would be Kia and Hyundai. So Kia and Hyundai have been buying data from JD Power and doing tweaks year on year because of what they see in the JD Power data. So survey will come in, customer says, I think the Bluetooth is hard to pair. I don't like the way that works. I don't like the way this works. That obviously lowers their score. So to try and get a better score, they improve the system, which ends up benefiting the customer. So it's not a bad thing and it's not gaming the system technically either. It's improving your product by using data that's available. Um, the VDS study after three years is relatively the same. It focuses a little bit less on customer satisfaction since that's been a little bit further removed. But the problem is with this data is it's all problems per 100 vehicles. So, you know, does my car catch on fire and leave me stranded on the side of the road? Did its transmission fall out accidentally over a speed bump? Or does my, my, my Ford touchscreen reboot itself every five minutes? In the classic definition of reliability, which one is more critical, which one is more important? It's probably the one that gets you stranded on the side waiting for a tow truck, not the one that's an annoyance as the vehicle drives down the road. But there is no distinction between these problems. And then as you were saying with Consumer Reports, Consumer Reports is drawing from a pool of very very select customers. They're subscribers to Consumer Reports. Um, Consumer Reports effectively does some online advertising, but 99.9% .9 of their revenue comes from subscribers. And these subscribers are also the ones feeding them data about their cars. So we have a very insulated ecosystem, especially of people that tend to be more educated, tend to drive more reliable vehicles as well. So when you look at the demographic, it's not casting a very wide net. And there are lots of holes in Consumer Reports data, especially when it comes to American branded vehicles. Because if you're interested in reliability, you probably didn't buy one and you didn't subscribe to Consumer Reports. So Consumer Reports doesn't have the data to then inform you on this purchase. You know, it's, uh, it's the snake eating its tail. Yeah, my rules of thumb for people who are worried about reliability in a new car is just buy a car that has an outstanding warranty protection package because there are no cars that have the kind of issues that were prevalent in the 70s and the 80s, uh, mm -hmm. a period of just awful paint, awful emissions control solutions, awful reliability, bad transitional yep. technologies. Today, just look for a great warranty package and understand that within the warranty span, you're probably fine. And then after five years, this is my rule of thumb, a car takes on the personality of its owner. So if you have a Toyota that was born beautiful and reliable, but it's had one oil change and it's never been in for, you know, so much as a tire rotation, you're looking at potentially a lot of problems. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you have something like an Alfa Romeo Giulia, but it was owned by someone who parked it in his living room, responded to every technical yeah. service bulletin and recall, made running changes to improve the car. Uh, it's never seen rain, that sort of thing. Like over time, a car will begin to look like its maintenance record. So since 75% of American car buyers buy used cars, demand a maintenance record, because that is your evidence of what kind of personality mm -hmm. the car will have based on its previous ownership. Second, look for recalls, because we talk a lot about anecdotal stories online. Oh, my buddy had that truck and it dropped transmission, or we had that car and you know, it, it burned itself to the ground. Well, recalls are a last resort for a manufacturer after the government has taken an interest, a problem has become statistically significant, and the company hasn't been able to fix it with lower level solutions like technical service bullets. Mm -hmm. 
So once you get to the point right. of a recall, you're looking at something that has already cleared a lot of bars and is, is genuinely problematic. If it's a Takata airbag, if it's something like the roof recall on the Ford Bronco, these are substantial large-scale problems that have mm -hmm. already been verified by others, so you don't have to. So look for open recalls. Yeah, and recalls themselves are tricky because some people will will see recalls as evidence of a bad car or an unreliable car. And that's not necessarily true either. There are oftentimes vehicle, most recalls, actually, the large percentage of them um, are actually voluntary recalls by car companies. So the car company has seen something in their internal data. They don't want to get sued by NHTSA. So they inform NHTSA and voluntarily stage a recall. That's a large portion of recalls there. Some are forced on them, like the General Motors ignition switch scandal that dragged on for a long time. Takata was somewhere between worlds because some car companies acted fast and some car companies didn't. Um, but the the general run of the mill recall is usually a you know what we noticed something went wrong in the factory, or we we did testing. Some of it actually comes from testing, and there are actually no consumer reported results of the problem. Um, so it can be anywhere in between. So you have to kind of dig through the recalls and really be educated about that. Classic problem, of course, is things like uh, the Hyundai Kia Fire recalls. Very few numbers of vehicles were actually affected, and the key thing that's happening in the recall is inspection. They just want to see if your car has this particular manufacturing defect or not. And if it doesn't, then it actually doesn't end up applying to you. Um, but recalls are pretty much universal. I mean, Honda has massive recalls for, for engine fires. Toyota has in the last few years as well. Um, you know, Honda has recalled something like 2 million cars in the last five years. Um, so the more cars you make, the more cars are going to ultimately get recalled. And what the recall is, is generally the most important factor. I mean, if the recall is brake pedal brakes off when you're braking hard, that's a bad recall. If the recall is, um, you know, we noticed that it's possible that, uh, you know, water could enter some component and something could miss malfunction and your instrument cluster could go back. It, it's not the worst thing, especially when you dig deeper into them and it says that, no customers have been affected by this. That's the big thing to look for in recalls is how often has it occurred in the wild? And oddly enough, a majority of recalls in the U.S. actually have not affected customer vehicles. So keep that part in mind. Um, but what you were saying about demographics earlier really is key to understanding some of these reliability metrics. Like, you know, when we take a look at Jeep and Land Rover on the reliability metrics list especially, these are two brands that are dedicated to selling off-road oriented vehicles. Whether it's you know a Land Rover or a Range Rover or a Wrangler or a Grand Cherokee, the mission of these vehicles is largely similar. And because they have more stuff on them, the more things you add to a vehicle, the more cause there is for failure. So if you add air suspension and adaptive dampers and a locking differential in the front and one in the rear and a two-speed transfer case, you know, and uh, off-road oriented bits and bobs, and then people actually take them off-roading or abuse them, et cetera, more things are going to break. So you're going to end up lower on that reliability list anytime you add more stuff to it. This is also true of luxury vehicles, generally speaking. So, you know, massaging seats, um, you know, air vents that move in a million different ways, cars that have more air boxes than they know what to do with because they've got four zone climate control or two different fans, one for the driver and one for the front passenger, like BMW loves to do in some of their vehicles. The more gadgets you add, the more opportunity there is for a reliability problem. 
And this is also why we see engineering wise, Toyota and Lexus take very different paths to engineering their vehicles. You will notice that Lexus, which is frequently at the top of the list for reliability, has a fairly old lineup of vehicles and they tend to like to refresh heavily and refresh infrequently compared to the Europeans. The BMWs and Mercedes of the world, they're on a six year cycle uh, because they want that lease revenue to come back. So new model, three years later, we refresh it. Three years later after that, we replace it. And so you're never gonna deal with the vehicle that is that old in a way when these reliability metrics are out. Lexus will massage things around for a long time. They'll bore out an engine. They'll add an extra gear to the transmission, but it's the same core design. They'll redesign the Camry lightly year after year after year. And only infrequently do we get massive changes to the design. And as we see in reliability numbers, those are frequently responded to on reliability metrics by a drop in reliability. You know, Lexus LS went with a twin turbo engine and a new transmission, which was a very unusual move for Lexus and their reliability uh, numbers suffered. Uh, we're also seeing that with Tundra, went to completely new design, completely new engine, even though it was based on the Lexus engine, reliability problems uh, occurred. So some of this also ends up being your personal appetite for reliability. If you're the person that says, I want a reliable car and that is my absolute top factor in buying a new vehicle, I would say go buy a midlife Toyota. You know, something that's been on the market for a while. Toyota's already built 500,000 of them. They know the problems, they fix the problems. That's your best bet. Um, but the problem with that logic is you won't get all the latest features. And statistics tell us that consumers are more interested in the latest electronics, the latest gadgets, the latest active safety systems, et cetera. And that means that you need a newer car and newer is always gonna be a potential for unreliability. Alex, tell our friends out in cyberspace how they can find us online. Yeah, so we've got lots of ways to find us here. We've got uh, EV Buyer's Guide. We've got the Alex and Auto's YouTube channel. We, of course, have this podcast here, which you can find us on all of the uh, major platforms, Google, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, etc. You can also find us over at Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And uh, soon there will actually be a separate YouTube channel for the podcast series because rather unfortunately, Google and YouTube's metrics are strange. So we're restructuring the way some of the videos work on the YouTube channel. Uh, we're actually gonna try and tighten them up, make them shorter. So rather than being 30 minutes long, they're gonna be 20 minutes long with a part two. And then the podcasts and other things that are live, et cetera, will live on in another world. You can find me, Tim underscore Masso on Instagram, cars and watches. Thanks so much. See everybody later.